Are you in a rut? Stressed by the demands of your personal, professional, and social lives? Join lifestyle guru Pauline Brown right now for Tastemakers. That's really where people can really make the celebrated individual the centerpiece. She invites her friends to share tips of the trade and new ideas for bringing out the best in you. My real passion is style, and not just style, but design, beauty, all things aesthetic. Turn the mundane into the memorable with Pauline Brown on Tastemakers. Hello, welcome back to Tastemakers. I'm your host, Pauline Brown. I am very excited to be continuing uh, a conversation that we began last week and one that reflects a new direction in this show, but it's also, um, as, as of the last year, been a new direction in my life. Uh, and I'll, for those who missed last week's recording, uh, just bring you up to speed very briefly. Um, let me start by saying last week was the first time in the five years I've been doing Sirius XM that I did an entire show without including or interviewing any outside guest. And I was very nervous going into it because I'm comfortable now being an interviewer, but less comfortable with this idea that I was actually not only the interviewer, but I was also the interviewee. Um, so I took that hour and, and, it, and it wasn't a straight interview of Pauline Brown, but it was an opportunity for me to share with all of you uh, some things I've never shared on the air. Um, my story, so how I started as a middle-class Jewish girl from Long Island, New York, with uh, not so many talents, but but lots of fire and lots of dreams, um, who ultimately, decades later, uh, landed one of the most powerful roles in the uh, global luxury fashion world. And, um, and I had a lot of twists and turns along the way. I shared that on the air with you. But in the process, I discovered that and, and, and I really had this epiphany that business is not just about the bottom line, it can't be, um, but if done well, uh, quality business is about legacy building, it's about storytelling, it's about bringing a sense of joy and beauty to all your constituents, not just your customers, but I'm talking your employees, your, uh, your, your partners, your vendors. I mean, that is what business should be doing at its best. I call this uh, the aesthetic imperative and it's a concept that I proselytize in many different forms. I wrote an entire book about it called Aesthetic Intelligence. I also advise a number of companies. Um, I know that I am getting traction when the kind of businesses I'm talking to are not just in creative businesses like beauty and fashion from whence I came, but I'm starting to hit companies who are in healthcare and technology, finance, you name it. And that is where beauty should extend to. This is not just a high design concept. So in today's show, I'm actually going to pick up on that theme, uh, but I'll, I'll do so with a very particular industry in mind. Uh, and it is an industry um, that arguably is the most dependent on good aesthetics of all industries. Uh, it's an industry I know well, um, and uh, it's one that I kind of have a love-hate relationship with. I'll explain why in a little bit. Uh, and I also, rather than continuing on this monologue path, I decided to bring two friends on the show to discuss this industry with me um, because they both bring their own perspectives on aesthetics, the business of aesthetics and the aesthetic imperative, but also on that industry itself, which is fashion. So one other point I'll make on why I decided to tackle the most obvious aesthetic business, which is fashion this week, is I cannot pick up a newspaper without reading about what's happening with one of the shows in one of the markets around the world. This is the tail end of 
what really is fashion month. It's often referred to as fashion week because there's a few weeks one after the other, but this is fashion month. And uh, as this show airs, we're, we, we're actually just wrapping up Paris Fashion Week, which is the last of the four big shows or the big weeks around the world. And it occurred to me in thinking about my listeners out there that most, and I'm taking a bit of a leap here, but most have absolutely no idea what Fashion Week is even about. And you sort of see these articles in the newspaper, maybe a review here and there, but it has less and less relevance uh, to people who are not in the industry so I decided, though, to take this, uh, this segment not only to demystify this concept of fashion week, but also to get into this concept of fashion, period. Like, does it even really retain relevance in a post-COVID world? We talk a lot on this show about the effects that COVID is having. It's changing the way you know, we behave, the way we shop, what our values are. So I'm really interested to hear from my two very insightful guests what they have to say about um, how it's changing fashion or will in the case of uh, getting our crystal balls out. So uh, I will quickly uh, introduce each of my friends here. Uh, one is a repeat offender. She's been on the show several times talking about everything from the future of food to the future of retail. Her name is Leslie Guise. Uh, Leslie, great to see you. So nice to be here. I always love joining in and I love participating in your conversations because you are so thought provoking. Well, I, I, and I um, said before we even went on the air that Leslie is one of my favorite guests because no matter what topic I, I throw out there, she not only has an original answer, um, but uh, she goes with it. She's a lot of fun and funny. You'll see. Uh, if you haven't heard her in the past shows, you'll take my word for it. Um, so what does she do? So she is the head of a cultural insights uh, practice. It puts out, among many things, a report called TOBE, T-O-B-E. It's a fascinating uh, guide to what's happening in the world. I essentially call it um, the preeminent trend, trend spotting uh, publication. She works with clients in all industries, including fashion and retail, uh, to understand trends and to predict where they're going and what the implications are. So in a nutshell, uh, she is a, an extraordinary futurist. Paola Oriel uh, is also a very dear friend. Um, she is actually uh, joining us from her home base in Portugal. Um, she has a very uh, impressive background. She is currently, though, most impressively working with me at Aesthetic Intelligence Labs. That's one of the things I do when I'm not on the air. Um, she's helped me uh, to develop a, uh, a really exciting online learning platform for aesthetic intelligence. Um, but the reason I also invited her on the show, in addition to just enjoying her taste levels and her her, her provocative thinking is that earlier in her career, uh, she worked at the international edition of Marie Claire, the magazine. Uh, she was based in Paris. And uh, you cannot even for a minute be at a publication like Marie Claire and not have a point of view about Fashion Week. So thank you. And Paola, thank you for coming on the show. Good to see you. Hi, Pauline. Thank you so much for inviting me to the show. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to leave you all hanging. Uh, but stay with us, because when we're back, we're going to dive into this concept. What is Fashion Week? Why does it matter? And where the hell is this industry going? We'll be right back. Stay with us. Now, more with Pauline Brown on Tastemakers on Sirius XM Stars. Hello. Welcome back to Tastemakers. This is Pauline Brown. 
I am here this hour with uh, two friends, Leslie Guise, who I just introduced as one of the best futurists around. She also is the head of uh, something called the Toby Report, which is a cultural insights publication and firm. I'm also here with Paola Oriel, who uh, works with me uh, at Aesthetic Intelligence Labs. Uh, Paola, early in her career, was on staff at the international edition of Marie Claire. So we're talking this hour about fashion, and we're starting with this concept of Fashion Week. Uh, I thought I would share a little bit of research uh, that I did before the show and, and learned a few things that I didn't even know as somebody who came from the industry. So first thing I learned is that with the, the origins of Fashion Week really started in Paris around the turn of the century, where a few of the big houses, which were really making fineries for you know, the aristocracy, would hire women to prance about in, in public places like racetracks and salons just to show off their clothes. And what's interesting about that, probably the only thing that's interesting about that is that these shows, and they were basically shows of women who were probably paid barely anything just to wear the clothes and be in you know, very visible places, was called défilé de mode. And défilé in French is a parade. And, um, and they were actually literally called fashion parades. And to this day in France, runway shows are still called défilé de mode. So they're still sort of think of them as parades. Um, but interestingly, even though they started on that very informal note in Paris, it really was here in the US where it took a life of its own, starting with department stores that were trying to attract a more middle-class woman into their stores. So they would have, you know, maybe in the little tea shop in a corner, similar to what you would have seen in Paris earlier, but wearing more wearable things, women walking around in parade form. And it was a bit of an event for shoppers to come in and see the women walking around in these parades. The first official quote unquote fashion week where it was actually called that was 1943 and that happened here in New York. And it wasn't until 1973, so 30 years later that the first fashion week in Paris took hold. So what's interesting if you flash forward to today is a couple of things you should know if you don't already, it's held twice a year, at least the big shows are held twice a year and they're held on what we call a retail cycle. So the, the collections that are, are coming out are collections that would be not what you would be able to buy or even wear today, but seasons, uh, seasons away so that the retailers can make their decision. So basically the origins of, of Fashion Week is a way to get the retailers together, the buyers from the retailers to see the collections, to place their orders for you know, six or 12 months down the line. And of course, it also is an opportunity for media to come and start to get people excited about what trends are happening. Um, but it is so out of sequence with the way the consumers are operating. Because if I see a Vogue magazine piece that has a few tidbits on some show that airs now, and I'm not gonna be able to see that in the stores you know, for many, many months, how relevant is it? Or if I see online on Instagram, a show that right now might have a summer collection and I'm heading into winter, it doesn't necessarily fulfill what I need. So even though it's become a bit of a celebrity circus and it is a big photo op, it really is having a hard time with the practical significance that it had when it first started. So I'm gonna take a pause. You've heard a lot of my uh, voice um, thus far. And I wanna ask, I'm gonna start with you, Leslie. 
Before we get into specifics of the four big shows, which happen, it goes New York, London, mm -hmm. Milan, Paris. Leslie, do you think fashion weeks are meaningful in this day and age? I think, yes, I think they're meaningful. And I think they're meaningful to, uh, you know, they're more, they're meaningful, but they're more meaningful to a particular group of people, right? So they're more meaningful to the industry and to the brands and to, you know, people who are really just living and breathing fashion. It's almost like the opera versus a movie in terms of, of what fashion and is to, to sort of a person who is absorbed and living in the world of fashion and a person who is just, you know, wearing fashion and buying brands, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's a little bit more elite, um, and and a little bit more of a passion for others than than it is. But I think it's important for a particular group, and I think it's important for the industry for marketing purposes and for exposure and for expression of what's happening with um, apparel, fashion, retail brands, collections. So mm -hmm. I think it's still important. And I think what we've had, what we've seen in this this last round of fashion weeks, as you say, because there's you know every there's the New York week, the um, London week, the Milan week, and then the Paris week. Um, and so, what I think we saw happen this year, coming off of COVID, is actually this um, sort of swinging back of the pendulum, where we were pre-COVID, we came off of an enormous like. It was just the pace was exhausting. The amount of clothing and events and and activities surrounding it were exhausting. The number of people swarming around was was excessive, and what it looked like and felt like was more thoughtfulness, more purpose, more selection, more edit, more, more curation from the edit of the audience that was actually sitting there live to the edit of the clothing that was coming down the runway. So I think that that's important. I think the other thing that's happened over the years from the history that you're talking about to the current condition that we're in is that marketing is blending with the presentation of product, right? Mm -hmm. Because the whole point of the, the, the runway was to show the product hanging on a, a hanger basically, which was a model. So you can see the drape, you can see the fabric, you can see the detail, you can see the color, you can see this cut of a, a garment. But now when people present, different brands present, like say Elder Statesman, if you look at Elder Statesman's presentation for the season, you can hardly see the clothes. There's people like in cars and laying on, on objects and, and mm -hmm. twisted and turned so you can't see the garment. But that also starts to build their brand and their brand presence. So I think what you're seeing happening is this blending of marketing and showing of product, mm. which I think is interesting. And so I think that makes the purpose and importance twofold. Yeah. Um, Paula, Paula, I'm going to ask you a question from your seat in Europe. So you lived in Paris. You uh, grew up a good portion of your life in Spain. You are now in Portugal. Um, and I'm a lifelong New Yorker. And even though one of the four, they call them the four big ones. So uh, as mentioned, the big fashion weeks, there are many other smaller ones that you don't read about. Uh, but the big one starts in New York, goes to London for a week, then to Milan, and then ends in Paris. And Paris is really the biggest of the big. Um, as a New Yorker, fashion week is a non-event, I think, unless you're in the industry. So, you know, if you happen to live across the street from Lincoln Center and most of the shows in Lincoln Center, you may be aware of it. But generally, you know, it's a big city. There's a lot going on. If I work downtown in finance, 
you know, at most, I would say it's like UN week where it causes a little traffic, but it's not doesn't take over the city. My experience, the times I've been in Paris during Fashion Week is it really takes over the city. You cannot be in Paris at that time without feeling that, you know, the, the, the effects of Fashion Week. I'm also wondering, though, even when you're sitting in Portugal, which doesn't have its own Fashion Week, or if it does, it's not one that, you know, we, we read about here. What's the effect and what's the relevance as a European? Um... So I don't think I wouldn't generalize as a European because I think it's very different the experience of being someone who lives in Paris, for example, and has a fashion week or in Milan as someone who's in Spain or Portugal. Uh, the experience is completely different. And as someone right now living in Portugal, the coverage is not the same. And I agree with you. And I think it's a similar experience. We don't really think about fashion week unless we are in the industry when we are in one of these countries but if you're in france for example working marketing in fashion even in finance uh, you would be aware of fashion week everything is different in the city not only uh like the fashion world but the people in the city you go to a restaurant and everything is about who's attending the restaurant what's happening the music in the festival is different in the festival in the restaurant and the whole city becomes um, a fashion show so mm -hmm. and everyone is expecting the like the event yeah leslie i, I think it's interesting and you i will say you surprised me by um still supporting the relevance of of these fashion weeks, you know, I guess the turning point for me where I started to question that is when I looked at the composition of who was attending, and this is pre-COVID. So as I mentioned earlier, at a fashion week, it used to be first and foremost, the retail buyers, so they could place their orders and know what was coming. Secondly, you'd have media, but it was very select media. It wasn't mainstream media. It was, you know, Women's Wear Daily, um, Vogue. And then, you know, and maybe you'd have if you were um, a really prominent buyer, so if I was Nan Kempner, who you know wore Oscar de la Renta, I'd go to his show, but it was very, very limited. Right now, you have influencers. The front, the front rows are all taken by celebrities and their handlers. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a and the show. It felt to me, and I you know went to many of the shows uh, during my LVMH days, and it always felt to me like it was really what happened. By before you 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 went into the you know the the space and and on your way out paparazzi everywhere yeah. um, and that's a huge distraction. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit curtailed right now because we're still being a bit cautious. But um, but you think at the at, at the core that it still is important to set trend to bring the industry together uh, to make good commercial decisions. I think yeah, because I think it's like. As I said, I think if, if the pendulum swings back and it's more thoughtful and purposeful, that I think is relevant. Mm. And I think that's a little bit of what we saw um, this week where the guest, list, the guest lists were trimmed up tight because they had to space people out, mm. where the collections were thoughtful in terms of the number of items and the, the actual styling and the fabric choices. Mm -hmm. So... I think um, the reason I, I, I still support them is I, I support them conditionally. I support them if they, people are doing them the way that they were sort of originally, for what they were originally meant for. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I know that we're in a multimedia world now. And so there's some level of marketing that's involved. And mm -hmm. I appreciate that again, as long as it's done properly and thoughtfully, I thought Tori Birch did a really interesting thing. I don't think the collection was that beautiful. Mm -hmm. I, I think the collection was, you know, nice. And it was, it was, you know, a safe collection and I'm, you know, I'm not particularly a Tory Burch customer, but I could see her customer responding to it. I think she's quite consistent for her customer. Mm -hmm. But I think the fact that she created like this outdoor market and gave people a little bit of an experience, it reminded me of what Anya Heinmarsh is doing with, um, you know, her like little village in London that has like a bake shop and a place to get your hair, um, mm -hmm. you know, washed and blown out. I, and to see product in different collections. Yeah. I, I like those kind of thoughtful and meaningful um, presentations. I don't like the um, circus that surrounds certain things. Yeah, and I think that that's meaningless. And I think that the the industry itself is still absorbed in celebrity and influence, and not um, clear on who is a real style setter and who is really a creative voice. Mm. So I I think that they will start to see that wane in two to five years, where they really have to kind of get back to basics, and really be able to yeah. show clothes beautifully and and pay attention to the people they should be paying attention to. So for, for those who um, didn't quite get the reference on Tori Birch, so what, what was interesting about her show was uh, one of the um, more better covered New York shows. She, she had just opened uh, a new flagship store on, I believe on Mercer Street in Soho. And it, it was days prior to the show, but so they actually closed down the street. It's a cobblestone street um, and it's quite a charming street. And they, they, they not only did the show along that side street, but they kind of brought it alive with, uh, you know, flower merchants and uh, I think it was a fruit stand. Um, so they, it, the staging of it was very clever and very um, enjoyable. And I, I always tell, you know, given my association with Neiman Marcus, I always tell the teams there, you're in the theater business, right? You're, you're, you're not just there, you know, because if, if it's just a matter of, of, of finding something in your size, in the right color, you know, and you're going to treat it just as a transactional sale, they may as well go online. It's a lot easier and faster. Um, but if you can you know, uh, help customers sort of discover things and 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 be immersed in the environment. That's where retail comes alive. So I do think some of them did that well. I think Gucci's been doing that well for yeah. years now. Um, I mean, I'm there's always, good theater and there's bad theater. There's bad theater. So, a uh, qu question for you: um, uh, Did you did you come across any bad theater this past month in uh, looking at the shows? I mean, I think. I think there's always, you know, good and bad. I really do. I just think sometimes people like do a great job and sometimes they do a poor job. So I, I probably wouldn't call out anyone as bad theater. I think my, my real takeaway is what I said before, which is I, I still want to see the clothes. So if you're not going to show me the clothes, please don't go through don't the effort. You. <laughs> you know, don't, don't, don't. I don't want to like try to imagine what's on the bottom of the pan or how long the skirt goes. Like I need to see it. And so I, I appreciate like, you know, like uh, La Double J, you know, the, the brand La Double J, they're like a resort brand. It's almost like a modern grown up Lily Pulitzer kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. um, lots of like prints, but very like more sophisticated than Lily Pulitzer. They did a beautiful job. It was on brand. It was clever to look at. It was, you know, it was a sort of 
aspirational and you could see everything mm. you knew what the clothes were so i think that versus like as i said earlier like a elder statesman that's like a contrast right there you know that mm -hmm. those two and i think also in terms of how you see things there's a presentation which is where there is no audience and they're presenting it in almost like a, a digital catalog or they're pre presenting some kind of produced like video or or you know file um there's the actual runway which is fashion week was always traditionally runways you know mm -hmm. a runway of clothes so that still exists but not everybody does it and then there's this experiential kind of thing like tori birch did or you mm -hmm. know coach did like coach tv or something um so there's now there's three different like sort of models for how you present your product to the world mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and some people present it like yeah i think we're gonna maybe touch on mark jacobs mark jacobs collection was presented in runway but not actually the right the season that the collections were if you really sort of mm. dissected it it was tell, more where now yeah so paula i know you you looked at mark jacobs collection as well um paula what do you what, what was your reaction uh i was a bit confused it took place in june and it was uh i mean it was like out of season which is what leslie was saying but i would also like to comment on something that leslie said i understand because uh, the collection was the fashion show was criticized a lot because it was more like a like a dance than mm -hmm. a runway mm -hmm. and you could see really the clothes that much uh, but I would like to ask Leslie, because I'm wondering where, whether right now, because uh, like uh, brands have such, such different platforms to communicate, isn't it more than just showing the clothes and about transmitting a message? They are becoming more than just fashion and they have this social responsibility and they are transmitting certain messages. So I'm wondering whether runways right now, they are more than just showing the clothes and they are more about transmitting the values of the brand. Mm. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think that I think that we're saying the same thing because I that's why I think there's these different models of how you put that brand and that that fresh collection of product from that brand out into the world. I think that if you were to really go back and examine runway shows, they always had notes like liner notes that were on the um, seat for you to see. And they did often have like a position on something or a stance on something. It may have been more esoteric or more creative than it is now. And, and more people now have a social um, position or a um, sustainability position or a diversity position. And they're, they're using those, their platforms to show that. So I, I, I think we're both saying the same thing, which is the brand makes a choice on how it presents itself. And if mm -hmm. presenting itself and addressing a social issue or a, um, you know, a climate change issue or a, you know, inclusivity issue or something like that, if that's their biggest like message, then that will be first and the clothes will be second. If the clothing is still the main point of this presentation or this, um, you know, exposition of what's going on, then they will take front, or, front and yeah. center stage. Sometimes they put the message right on the clothes. I mean, remember was it like Victor and Rob that had so like I, the text on messages that, on the shirt, on the dress? I have to ask, this is not a fashion week, but it did happen not long ago. AOC tax the rich. Was that was that good or a good move or bad move, Leslie? I mean, I think it was a neutral move because I think people who like her probably loved it and people who don't like her hated it. 
Um, so I don't, I don't, I think it's like no harm, no foul, but <laughs> total harm and total foul. Here's a question for both of you. What what do you think in general, you know, like uh, Maria Dior has done a lot of this with sort of about women and empowerment, but they are they they put it in sort of a graffiti um, imprint on the fabric. What do you think of those sort of political statements on clothing as part of fashion? Like it or loathe it? Paula? Uh, personally, I don't like it. I think maybe the clothes should speak by itself without the message. And it's just not my style. But I think there is a customer for that. So as long as there's a customer, I think it's fine. But I just think that it's a sort of maybe less thought way of mm. communicating something through a style. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I do yeah, not. I do too. Uh, I don't care for it. I think it's too aggressive. I think it's, I think it's actually very reflective of the environment that we're, we're in now, which is that everybody truly believes their opinion is the most important. And mm. I think that AOC truly believes that her opinion is the most important. And I, I think that she she and others who put these messages on clothing are really taking the stand because they believe in that and they're passionate about that. But I think they could be underestimating um, the sort of irony in it, which is, well, now you're pushing your opinion on somebody versus you know mm. changing someone's opinion. And so I think that when a message is put i do like like i do like conversational things mm -hmm. meaning i like things that are a little thought provoking or make me like chuckle a little bit or um i that are beautifully designed and have something in there but i don't love the aggression and the um anger and sort of the um you know kind of one-sidedness of mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I would say I'm with you. I think it generally feels cheap to me. There's all sorts of ways that are sophisticated and thoughtful and meaningful to convey a position without actually having to scribble it on, you know, a $30,000 gown. It's um, also kind of a low blow because nobody can really talk back. Right. That's true, too. So it was I want I have to pick up one of the shows that I am utterly bewildered by. Um, it was in Milan Fashion Week. And I never saw anything like this. I just think it's the most bizarre thing ever. It was two houses, Versace and Fendi, coming together for what has been now referred to as Fendaci. What? <laughs> uh, Paolo, can, can you explain? I, I think it's fascinating, especially because they are the two main competitors of one another. And they swapped collections. So I think... Um, uh, so Donatella Versace was designing for Fendi and Kim Jones and Venturini and Fendi were designing for Versace. And that's how it became this new brand. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a new way of provoking um, the customer. Mm -hmm. And also, um, I was actually very surprised about it. But if you see like the, fa the four fashion um, weeks this year, a lot of them were about community. Mm. We are coming out of COVID. We are coming out of such a, an insightful phase in society. And a lot of brands, they are trying to understand what to do with it. Mm. And I think it was a way of collaborating. That's and showing That's probably the most, um, I would say, charitable view of that I've seen. Um, Leslie, what was your reaction? Um, I, I agree. I think it's like the height of collaboration in terms of um, people are just always think, trying to think of new ways Brands and businesses are always trying to think of new ways to collaborate or sort of shake things up. I think there was 
you know, I think Prada and Raf got together and they're in the same house and they're partnering so that there's like an infusion of, of sort of fresh thinking for the, the Prada brand and household house. But I think this was like, we, you know, it was almost like they were like, okay, we'll see your collaboration and we will one up you and we will now trade houses and do this. Like, it was almost like, um, let's give it a try. Like people are doing it. Let's give it a try. I, I, oddly, I don't think the clothing turned out too much differently. Right. I mean, that, again, <laughs> again the, the idea, which was somewhat bewildering to me was one thing, but at the end I looked at it and I thought you kind of are saying how indispensable everyone is. I mean, they, you know, make all these stories. Donatella should not be able to have a voice anywhere other than in Versace. And all of a sudden the fact that she could so seamlessly in a mere season be leveraged somewhere else it to me I, I thought the idea of it was was interesting it obviously got a lot of attention but it was something also dilutive to each of those brands yeah I, I mean I'm I am not particularly like it's not neither of them are my style or appeal to me at all so you know the wonder twins uniting was not helpful for me at all <laughs> so so I do have to ask so if of, of everything you've seen, and maybe even not um, a, a brand that wasn't even represented in one of those big four fashion weeks. Uh, Leslie, what, what, what's your favorite? What's your favorite? And is there a difference this season versus what you would have said over, you know, consistently in the last 10 years? You know, I think it's so interesting because the, the, brand, the brands that were like the hot, hottest brands, I don't know if it's like a nostalgia thing or if it's just like, um, like the muscles that I've developed or whatever. I do love some very classic brands. I, mm. I love Dior. I, I think that it's very pretty. I think that it's it's very like simple, tailored, fresh. It's kind of like young and old. Um, I love the simple dresses. I love the denim. I love the accessories. I always love Chanel. If money mm. were no object, I really do love Chanel. I do not love Chanel the way you think of it, but I love that there are so many interesting pieces of Chanel. So if I had no no uh, restrictions on funding, I would really sort of um, pick all the casual, drapey, modern-y mm. stuff and cross-merchandise it with other stuff. Mm. There's a brand called Wardrobe NYC that I totally adore. It's all like classic basics, lots of black and white and neutral colors. You can buy capsules where you get like a whole wardrobe of clothing or you can buy them in pieces. I love it. I love the Montclair collaborations. Mm -hmm. I think they really capture like my imagination and my attention, although none of my wallet. I, <laughs> I would not, I can't, I mean, I, you have to swap, be like living in Alaska to wear it. Um, but I, I do. I have a particular soft spot for Balenciaga. No matter who sits at the helm of the house, I have a particular soft spot for them. I love sort of the level of genius that's there right now. The irony that's in there, the sort of commentary on, on society, the, the way proportion and gender are played with, the sort of um, expressionism that's in there. I love it as much as I loved when um, Nicholas Gascari was in there making like classic um, mm -hmm. sort of rounded Balenciaga origin silhouettes. Mm -hmm. I still love mm -hmm. it. And I would always cherry pick product. Okay. Wow. Oh, that one I didn't expect. I, uh, I would always cherry pick Prada. There are certain things that nobody does as good as Prada. And mm -hmm. I also think they're having like a, a nice like resurgence with their um, 
nylon stuff. Yeah, the nylon yeah. Stuff that made I'm, them so I'm famous, which I'm quite nostalgic for. I'm watching that one with, especially with Rafe's involvement. Um, and Paula, if money were no object, uh, your your go to your standouts. My go to brand or uh, uh, my go the the show. one that you, that just really inspires you time and again. I think it's always Loewe. Loewe, uh, oh, very very I, patriotic of you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think that's a way for me choosing that, but it's a, a Spanish brand, and I I just love the way, especially since Jonathan Anderson took over, and mm -hmm. uh, how he revisited the brand and he made of such a conservative brand, a modern and and like such a dreamy brand. They still pay homage to the heritage. They have a lot of craftsmanship, but they always make you dream with new collections, new colors. Uh, they had this new collection about two years ago, uh, which they were really getting inspired by mm -hmm. French Morgan, so mm -hmm. this English author in the 18th century, and how they just take the best out of the brand, but always uh, remain relevant. Mm. And yeah, are yeah. I, I love that. Yeah, no, I think it's it's also culturally very interesting brand. Um, now, I know we're going to put you on the spot here, and you probably weren't glued to the uh, to, to your computer, Ciara. But um, what, what's, what, what fashion brand inspires you? Honestly, what I find interesting is, um, and this is a controversial, I'm not a huge fan of this person, but Kim Kardashian and Skims mm. and the things she does and in different industries, even outside of fashion, but specifically with Skims, the diversity and just this interesting market, especially considering her body is very marketed in her world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so. So I love that we that you, that you brought that in. Number one, because Skims is really not a fashion brand; it's sort of a shapewear. Uh, right. She's kind of made it fashiony, but also it what you what you're bringing out in that in that in that um, you know last statement is the sort of disconnect between what we would see in any of those fashion weeks and what you know real people. And I'm sure. 90% of our listeners related to that answer over Balenciaga and Lueve and what I was going to say, which is Valentino, which is my, oh, do I love that stuff. But um, <laughs> but that's not real. It's just not real. Um, and, and not I to mention- I think Skims, she did a great, I mean, they, did, they do a great job. I mean, the, the quality of the product is great. It, I mean, you can't really take anything away. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and the marketing uh, per your point earlier, Leslie. Um, yes. So we have to take another quick break, but we'll be back in a moment for our final segment. Uh, I have so much more I want to cover. I may have to have you guys back for a part two on this one. Um, but stay with us. You're listening to Tastemakers Talking Fashion. We now return to Tastemakers with Pauline Brown on Sirius XM Stars. Welcome back to Tastemakers. This is Pauline Brown. We are talking fashion. Uh, we're, we started the show talking about the relevance of, or, or lack thereof, of Fashion Week, uh, which started earlier this month in New York and, uh, and just wrapped up in Paris. Uh, I have here two friends, Leslie Guys, who's, um, I would, I'd like to call her uh, my favorite futurist. Uh, she is the president of Toby Report, which is a cultural insights firm. And Paula Oriel, who works with me at Aesthetic Intelligence Labs, and Paula early in her career was uh, with Marie Claire, the magazine in Paris, the international division. Um, okay, so I want to take these last few minutes that we have and uh, get your reaction uh, to a controversial statement I'm going to make. I, I uh, this past weekend, 
um, I went with great enthusiasm to the Dior exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum. And, um, and I've, over the years, uh, certainly admired the Dior, Dior collections, some of the, the designers behind it, I much preferred to others. But, uh, and I knew a bit about the man, not a lot about the man before I went there. And I had, I actually thought it was exquisite. I mean, the, the collections that, that were on display, the way that everything were, um, were presented, um, really, really beautiful. But there was a part of me that felt there were two things that, that didn't feel right. One is, and I know I'm not the first person to articulate this, but should a public museum that's funded by the public, that they're about you know, art and pre preservation of great art and be featuring a multi-billion dollar company that is essentially sponsoring it for millions of dollars. These are very expensive exhibits to put on that has you know, a lot to gain and that essentially massaged the entire exhibit. So the two things that were uncomfortable for me was the lack of integrity in this coming out of a cultural institution, number one, not for a historical brand, but one that continues to sell perfume and handbags that are you know, inspired by the very, very expensive pieces that were on display. And number two, that when I read the, the, the narrative about, for example, Mr. Dior and all the designers that succeeded him, I felt that it was very superficial and very PR driven. So for example, John Galliano, who I think was one of the best creative designers that ever went through that house, he was fired for his anti-Semitic rants. And in general, he a very unstable character who, you know, had a lot of issues. None, it wasn't even mentioned as a blip, but that was probably the most dramatic juncture in modern history of Dior, it wasn't even mentioned. And so I felt like the whole thing was very much a show sponsored and paid for by the PR department. And that felt, I felt manipulated for that, even though it was beautiful. So I, I just wanna take a second and see if you guys have reactions. I don't know that either of you saw the exhibit or if you did when it was maybe even in, in Paris, Paula. But Leslie, let's start with you. I, I did not see the, I didn't get there yet. I did see lots of images of it. So the only thing I can really respond to is what you're saying and just sort of the positioning of it. And I think what's so interesting about what you're saying is that it was, there's a, there's a blurry line between the art and the commerce of the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that people are so conditioned by that that they probably didn't notice the way that you did because this is, they're conditioned. When they look at Instagram and they look at somebody, they know that that person is promoting something and making money to put it on and put it on Instagram. Um, we've gotten to the point where every single thing is a promotion. There is no, mm. there is not a ton of integrity out there in general. Mm. And so I, I can know. see why that would be bothersome to you. And on the flip side, I can see in light of that, dynamic why they would not underscore the John Galliano thing. <laughs> I, I get it. Like they were like, why should we write about that? We're writing the story. Why should we write about that? Um, so it's not, you know, a, a great kind of representation or it's not a, it's not a, yeah. a complete representation of what went on. On the other hand, as it relates to the artistry of it, I am a big believer that there is artistry in the, the, designing of, of clothing. I don't think that that artistry and craftsmanship is as celebrated as it used mm. to be. I think mm. to Paolo's point, the social positioning and the, the what the brand stands for are getting much more play. But like Marc Jacobs, 
I just want well, just to circle back to the Mark Jacobs show. He is an excellent craftsman. His, mm. he's, he is a perfect technician of American fit. I mean, his, his sizing, his garments, his fit, mm. his, his finishing, everything is beautiful. No, when I came up in the industry, that's what we talked about in a garment. Mm. Like we mm. turned it over to see the seams and like, that is not a discussion so much anymore. Mm. Um, but I think that, that, that as it, as a marriage of, of the museum and, and showing a, a designer with that much gravitas, I think is an exhibit. Mm-hmm. How they positioned it and how the brand benefited from it, I agree with you, is, dis, is, is, not, is a little disingenuous and not quite, doesn't have the level of integrity that you'd like to see. But that said, I think that most people mm-hmm. are used to that. Mm, and do mm. not find that weird, especially a younger generation. I do not think they find that weird at all. I think they know it's happening. And because they know it's happening, it's not disingenuous to them. It's, mm. we, we're not quite as used to that, I don't think. Paula, do you agree or do you have a different position? No, I completely agree with what Leslie said. But I think in an ideal world, uh, the museum will be able to feature uh, the collection and the brand without the sponsoring of the brand. Mm-hmm. So that it will be objective and so that this sort of mm-hmm. slight um, change mm-hmm. in the truth is what happened, uh, will happen. But uh, the way museums work nowadays, they really need the funding. And that's mm-hmm. how, that's why these kind of collaborations that end up happening, which I don't think it's completely ethical. And so I think that's where the fine line. And, and you're right. I mean, they they do draw the crowds. I would not have gone to the Brooklyn Museum you know, for a more traditional exhibit. So you're absolutely right about that. So another- but Pauline, in your experience, cause you had, yeah. you have a lot of background with uh, LVMH and mm. they are very, you know, uh, real patrons of of the like art and, and that kind of thing. But there's always seems to be kind of, you know- I mean, to be clear, they've never contributed without getting the brand credit, right? Even the okay. Fondation de Louis Vuitton in I mean, that is a brand building exercise. Right. So I think of real patrons as all of those individuals who give without having a hall name. Right, without them, having, right? okay. Right. Um, it is a brilliant marketing strategy for fashion because fashion wants to be at the center of culture. But the question is, should museums be viable? Um, right. And I'd like to think not, but I know that, that they're under commercial pressure as well. So I have time for one final, final question for you guys. Um, and this is taking you to another part of New York City that currently has a fashion exhibit, which is the Costume Institute at the Met. So mm-hmm. in the unveiling of that exhibit, uh, they always have the big party, which is really one big photo op. I can tell you it's not nearly as fun as, uh, as it may look from uh, the pictures. But um, if there was one, um, as you recount, and there were quite a few standout, like at least noteworthy uh, costumes worn by various celebrities. But if there was one that really spoke to uh, each of you or that you remembered, even if you hated, uh, does anything come to mind? Leslie? I, I don't have the same level of, of interest in statement making that most, I like pretty clothing. I like clothing. I, I mean, and Balenciaga, who I love, is arguably not really totally pretty clothing, but I like, I don't like the 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 circus part of it. Uh-huh. I like the artistry part of it. 
Um, so I did not find that many of the the looks that appealing at all. Mm-hmm. I weirdly, um, the only one I'm thinking of that I thought like was really pretty. I thought Kate Hudson looked really, really pretty. Like she had yeah, a beautiful okay. pale pink, you know, dress. So in other words, you don't look, you don't look to Billy Porter for for inspiration. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I also don't like. Um, I, I I don't like when it looks uncomfortable. And I felt I felt like of all the Met galas. This was the one that everybody looked super, super uncomfortable in, mm, in their clothing mm. with like things over their heads. It can, I mean, you know, <laughs> Kardashian, but even people were coming out of the Mark Hotel to go with like stuff over them. So they could, they were like walking around like, the, you know, yeah. it was bananas. Paula? Um, I, I agree with what Leslie said. And I think I, I was actually wondering what happened this year because I think it's, it was even more exaggerated than other years. Mm-hmm. You see that people were just so willingly to go outside and and be eccentric and party and just uh, exaggerate and everything yeah. that they've been using. Yeah, I think it is getting so hard to get attention um, mm-hmm. that just to be elegant and red carpet ready is not sufficient. And it almost becomes outrageous that the bar is outrageous. Where I took exception this year, I would say two things. Um, and I'll end on that note. One is it wasn't it didn't really honor the theme. I mean, it didn't say to me this is, a, you know, I mean, Jennifer Lopez with this cowboy thing, but that I was very gimmicky. I couldn't figure out the theme. When they were all coming in, I had to call my sister and say, what, what was it? What's, What's the, theme? the theme? And then the second thing is that um, more and more of the women are basically coming naked, you know, and, and I don't think that's appropriate for a costume gala. Um, <laughs> it may get you the the eyeballs and the uh, and the hits, but, you know, and there were quite a few of those this year as well. So I'm not even going to give them extra eyeballs by pointing out. But let's just say there was there, were, there was a there lot, was a lot of nudity, a lot of nudity. Um, so sadly uh, for me, because I love this topic and I have quite a few questions I didn't get to, um, but I'm certainly going to keep on this thread, this uh, these, these sort of trends that are shaping our own aesthetic tastes and what which ones matter and which ones don't. And and thank you uh, to my two guests, Leslie. You are always just a bundle of insight and wisdom and experience. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having me. You are also a bundle of wisdom and insight <laughs> and experience. So, and, and, and Paolo, love having you on the show. I'm going to keep bringing you on. <laughs> um, you're my, my uh, aesthetic soulmate here. And uh, as always, thank you to Ciara Kaiser, my producer, and Mark Aflalo, our sound guy, who unfortunately didn't hear his voice, which is such a good radio voice. Uh, you didn't hear it this week. I got to bring him on next week. Uh, but thank you. Uh, he is working hard behind the scenes. Look forward to uh, picking up on the conversation next week. Uh, and meantime, uh, thanks for tuning in.